Hello, and welcome to the Mick Poisson podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView and best selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with a flow framework. Joining me on today's episode is Brendan Hopper. Brendan is the Commonwealth Bank Group CIO of Technology, responsible for ensuring the bank has a world-leading IT engineering capability and is making the right technology investments and decisions so that technology becomes an accelerator, not a disruptor, for them and their customers. Prior to this role, Brendan was a general manager of CBA's Cybersecurity Center, working around the clock to actively defend customers and vital bank infrastructure from cyber threats, and is a co-founder of SEE.edu, CBA's industry partnership with UNSW, another university to grow cyber education in Australia since 2015. I've been collaborating with Brendan for two years now, and I'm incredibly impressed at how effective he's at driving transformation results and flow at scale. So with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project to Product podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined by Brendan Hopper, CIO of Technology at Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which is actually Australia's largest bank. So before we hear more about uh, CBA from Brendan, I'm just thrilled to have him on the podcast because we've been working and collaborating very closely for the last two years, and I've learned a ton from him in terms of uh, what it's like to help drive innovation and flow at, at an organization of his scale. So with that, Brendan, welcome. Thanks, Mick. It's great to be here. And if we could just get started, listening to the to you talk about the early days of your career, right? It's just such an interesting story to me about how you came from InfoSec, how meticulously crafted and organized your entire career progression was, or, or not, as, as we may find out, but really how you end up here. But tell us about the early days, tell us about the start, tell us about the kind of perspective that uh, that drove you to to want to learn more about how to scale these kinds of things, really from your early days, I think, in InfoSec, unless, unless you plan to go back earlier than that, so... Yeah, no, I'll go all the way back, but don't worry, I'll be quite, I'll be quite quick. I mean, I, I got into computing and programming. I, I was very lucky. I was gifted a computer when I was about five or six in the late 80s. Uh, and sort of, there was nothing to do on a computer. Wait, which computer except, was it? Uh, what was it? It was a, it was a, it ran CPM OS. It was an Australian, it was an Australian specific computer called a Microbee. Oh. Uh, and it ran CPM. Uh, and so there wasn't a lot to do except for, like work out how it worked and try to make it work better and build things on it. So I got into programming very young. And then uh, sort of when the internet sort of became a big thing in Australia when I was about 11 or 12, not not a big thing, but I was like a, probably an early adopter for the region. I very, very quickly got into the online cybersecurity community and met some people who were involved in vulnerability research and exploit development. And they were a, a few years older than me. Uh, so I learned a lot from them about like the very low level details of how operating systems work and how you analyze code for security vulnerabilities and how you write exploits. And I got very involved in that community. I started university, but I wasn't actually able to, uh, to finish. I couldn't afford to do university and not work and I couldn't cope with working and doing university so I actually never finished my bachelor's degree and when, when I was about 18 I made a vow never to do information security at the time because cyber security wasn't a word they used yet and then by the time I was 21 I was doing it as a, a full-time career so very quickly walked that vow back. I spent about 10 years 
as a pen tester, red teamer, as that industry was emerging, also like just doing vulnerability analysis and exploit development, like researching, helping companies design and develop more secure products. And I worked for a very small firm for a long time, for like five or six years that was like 10 people in Australia and 10 people in New Zealand. But we were like very high-end attack testers. So we sort of like in Australia rotated around our big four banks and help them make their security better. And then 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago today, I joined ComBank full-time as a security tester uh, and then started like eventually like leading teams and growing through the cybersecurity team there. And like I, I built our first AppSec practice, helped, helped the group for me, discovery, did attack architecture defense, sort of rotated around all the roles in cyber until a couple of years ago where I decided to like make a vow once again to stop doing cybersecurity professionally and flip over and now I run like engineering and technology strategy for CBA. So and so what what's behind that vow? Because I think like what just tell actually tell us a little bit more what it was like in those days as you were as you were learning how to both the experience of moving from bank to bank but then really scaling this out and the practices out at at at, at Commonwealth Bank. How did you start thinking about the engineering aspect of it? Like, what, 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 what actually brought you to that? To considering strategy and engineering in terms of what what you were learning on the security side. I mean, there's probably two things that went into me making a decision to sort of put down the swords or like stop doing. I always think about that Kill Bill, like a Tori Hanzo style vow, like never to do cyber again, never to make swords. I are. Uh, one was a personal thing. We're in cybersecurity, very, very hard job. I respect everyone in that industry so much, particularly on the defense side, because you're not really building, th- like no one ever thanks you when you're doing incident response, when you go and cut someone's access because they've been compromised. No one's like, thank you for stopping me doing the thing that I wanted to do today. So, so people in, in that part of technology, they, they work very hard. And primarily, though, they're not like creating delight. They're not building things that make people delighted. They're making sure that things that other people build don't go wrong and sometimes don't go catastrophically wrong. Super, super important. But for me personally, I didn't want to like spend my whole life or my whole career just on that stopping other people. I wanted to start building things myself or being more involved in the creative side. And then the second element was also like from a from a CBA perspective, I, I looked at it as a, you know, if you think about when I started in vulnerability research when I was like 11 or 12, you could get a piece of open source software, you could find a vulnerability in a day, and you could write an exploit for it on that same day. You could basically have an attack tool in one day. Right. Now that's like nine months of work. That's actually professionals who are specialists. Sometimes one person finds the vulnerability another specialist writes the exploit, a third person like or a team of people write the framework that that happens from. And so I saw this like curve of sophistication of attack rising and I realised that effectively in order to stay safe, companies were actually going to have to start being able to deliver faster and faster and faster to outpace the kind of development of attack but also to think very differently about how you engineer so that you reduce the blast radius of every element. So the worst, the worst thing that can go wrong isn't catastrophic. And that sort of made me really realise maybe the best spot for me would be to flip across and start running engineering 
and start focusing on how we get like that. Uh, you talk sometimes about like this, you know, the tech giants with their 100,000 time software velocity. How do we get that in a big bank while still being as secure as a bank requires and our regulators require? And I just, as soon as I started thinking about that, I fell in love with the problem and, you know, the rest is history. So you know, that velocity would give the bank safety, you mean? Absolutely. And like, you know, the, the, I remember at the time, I was actually realizing that like the way conventional security is done is through caution or like the way that all safety things are done in sort of manual industries is through caution. And I sort of mentally pictured like in Australia, we have like a, a particularly where I grew up, there's lots of places where you can uh, effectively drive your car or your motorbike around the mountains, uh, which are right near the, the ocean. And there's all these signs that are like, beware of falling rocks. And I sort of realized that the conventional approach to beware of falling rocks is to walk really, really slowly and look up all the time. Uh, but that actually a certain amount of velocity and agility, if you are fast enough and nimble enough and able to move quick enough, you, you actually are too fast for the rocks. And so like... I had that mental picture and I realized that that's the from and to. Well, Brendan, I'm glad we were involved here uh, in, in my area of the world in British Columbia, Canada, where it says no stopping falling rocks. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're never going to get the agile of bushwalking there then. No, that's right. So, so, so I guess this was a bit of an epiphany for you, right? Is that is that that caution and making sure everything is, you know, for me, I actually had a similar one, not, not with anyone near the depth of yours, but I'll just reflect on it, on it briefly. But when one of my colleagues was uh, actually responsible for some of the portions of, of Azure and the development supporting security initiatives on, on Azure, he was explaining to me how much of a pivot it was for them. This is a few years ago, obviously, or quite a few years ago, uh, to move away from, from constantly thinking about mean time to failure and looking at how to be more safe, more cautious, and that everything was turning into mean time to to repair and or, or meantime to restore service, right? How quickly they could actually evolve this complex service to patch things, to respond, to react, uh, and the, the, the velocity would would drive their safety. So, was it anything? So, I guess it was in the end just just the was it the scope of was it? And I guess the nature of the attacks that that's a really interesting story is that the, the sophistication was that the main thing that that had you realize this? I guess is there is there anything else to that genesis? Uh, it was probably a confluence of a few things. Like as well, I you know I read that. Taylor book, Anti-Fragile and right. that whole concept of yeah. anti-fragility and started to think far more about security in that context as well. Like, because, I mean, uh, I got when I joined the vulnerability research community when I was like 11 or 12, there was maybe 100 people in a bunch of chat rooms on IRC. And so I've stayed connected with a lot of people that have spread across the tech ecosystem. So I've got a, I just stayed in contact with like, what's happening with my friends and some of them are in the tech giants and some of them are like, like basically spread out everywhere. Uh, and it roughly like, you know, the Google and their whole zero trust movement over the last 10 years, I, I, that clicked for me that that's part of the whole like anti-fragile thing. Don't make each individual component really strong. Make each in individual component really uh, like make, make sure the system is strong, which means that sometimes you have to cater for components failing. And like, at the same time, cyber as an industry was going through this shift where like, you know, the 
in the 90s, the 2000s, 2010s, you thought about like protecting a castle, keep people on the outside. And then it shifted into very much like an immune system. Like sometimes people will get in, track them down, develop antibodies, and then don't just make yourself safe. Like share that as threat intel across the industry to keep everyone safe. And so it was like all those factors of thinking that came together that made me realise that velocity and safety and security are, you'll hit a point where caution will no longer actually be acceptable, an acceptable solution. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing as systems get more complex. That that's exactly where where things are ending up, and I think security is just one example of it. So then, tell us, kind of, you know, what happens next as as you get into more of the strategy and the engineering side of things. Tell us more about your journey. Yeah, it was very very interesting. I mean, like, uh, as soon as we started doing this sort of like engineering push, velocity push to 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 listen to our people, to go and talk to our engineers who are building products, like. The, the first month of the role, I spent a quarter of my time, a third of my time reading books and connecting with people like you who are like leaders in the industry and like selling that, like driving the message and the transformative story. And the rest of my time, just like right at the front, listening to people who were trying to ship product to our customers and what problems they were facing. And I actually realized that like some things that I'd done, some rules I'd made, some solutions I'd put in place on cybersecurity were actually really slowing people down. They were adding the safety, but they were almost making the developers' jobs untenable because we'd been very prescriptive about the how. You'll do it this way rather than giving them the outcome and letting them solve themselves. And then when you go deeper into that problem, it's very much about like I think successful organizations are where all the different teams recognize and respect and appreciate that each other is an expert at their own domain. And it's about sharing knowledge and sharing problems rather than solving them in silos. So yeah, that's uh, that was sort of the first couple of months on the job. And then that's the point at which you sort of started detecting the amount of you know, burden. And, and this is, of course, common. This is not, not specific to, to the organization or the part of the organization you're working with, but just the sheer amount of burden that, that's there in, in a typically large organizations with tens of thousands uh, of IT staff and developers. So tell us, a, I guess, a, a bit about that portion of the journey. So you know, some of what you were seeing, obviously, is the, uh, some of the security and compliance related items i guess how what i've been really impressed with obviously is how you've actually helped bring cba forward in terms of recognizing this and in terms of optimizing for flow looking at optimizing for autonomy and really starting to understand the economics of flow because otherwise what happens is and we've seen this across various industries and the the amount of burden compliance burden the amount of security burden and safety burden that's put on Teams and entire value streams uh, slow, slows velocity to a halt, right? So, and which is to your point, counterproductive to to the thing that we're trying to address, which is which is safety in this case. So, how did you how did you start seeing this as you started working with the teams, and and then what did you? I guess the key thing is you, you got into the books, but what did you do next on this on this journey of discovery? The the first thing was that very clear talking to the teams like like going and talking to a team of developers and they were frustrated that they were still shipping amazing products. And just so I, everyone on the call, like 
Commonwealth Bank might not be broadly known around the world, but in Australia, we're systemically important. We have seven to eight million digitally active customers every day on um, mobile app. Our app's been rated number one in Australia by Forrester for six years in a row now. So we're, 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 they were still shipping this amazing product and we still are. And it's, it's much, much better now than it was two years ago. So we're, we're starting to like work how, how to do like safety and velocity together through automation. But the first, the first real thing was that uh, like developers were struggling, but they weren't really struggling to get the work done. They were struggling emotionally. What they were doing was working more to compensate for like the, the how much tension was in the process. Ops and security were very far away from development. And so they were like emotionally making up for that. The second thing was when we brought the people into the room together, the first 10 minutes, like I remember very clearly, I got a bunch of people who worked on it, like development tools and some of the security people and a bunch of our developers put them in a room and like just have a listening session. And it was like the first half an hour, everyone just had to get things off their chest. And then they actually realized they all worked for the same company and they started solving together. And so a little bit of it was just about connecting. And then immediately, like the next step I took, like was to go and engage at the highest levels of our organization and build awareness because uh, like, you know, it, like the way we'd structured ourselves uh, like up top with our executive forums was almost like they would discuss features and velocity and product. And then on a separate day, they discuss safety and risk. Uh, and by, I really realized that unless we solved it with the CEO and the executive leadership team, and to some extent, like uh, the next layer down, unless they understood the problem and the need to bring it together, we weren't going to be able to succeed organizationally wide. Yeah, so Brent, that that's really interesting. I think that, in my view at least, a, a big part of the the reason for your successes in, in the last months and years has been the way that the CEO and the executive team got engaged. And of course, that's that's how I got the opportunity to meet you as well. So how did you pull that off, right? Because all of a sudden you've got a level of sponsorship and engagement that that I think is absolutely transformational. I had on, on a previous podcast with Christina Diotti, uh, he and I both reflected on the fact that the most, the fastest, most successful transformations we've seen at, at large scales, and he's he's in the Silicon Valley product group, had CEO involvement, but but closer involvement, right? And and some degree of, of oversight and and of course the, the empowerment that's needed as well. But how how did you pull this off at CBA? How did how did your CEO actually become so closely? Um, become so close to the transformation? I mean, first and foremost, I, I, I was very lucky maybe the confluence of some accidental forces and then also just having a really good CEO and executive leadership team. But uh, coming from cybersecurity and being in the group for 10 years or eight years at the time, I developed a lot of trust and I'd probably not said a lot to the key people around our executive leadership team. But every time I had said something, it was pretty much really, really important because cyber only becomes a, like cyber becomes a conversation very quickly. When there's a cyber issue, it goes up through the organization really fast. And so I had this reputation for trust. Uh, and then I effectively went straight to them with my diagnosis of the problem and said, I need your buy-in. 
I remember talking to our CEO and saying, this isn't the CIO's problem. This is, this is a group-wide problem that you have to sponsor. Uh, and then he uh, actually talked to a bunch of other CEOs of tech companies and things and bounced that idea off them, like, is tech transformation the job of the CIO, the CTO, or the CEO? And he unanimously got this story back that it was the CEO that had to sponsor it for it to be a success. And that, that's made it a lot easier. But in some ways, it's also added its own difficulties too. I think there's always a trade-off there, like where you engage. If you engage with the tech organization first, that has a set of pros and cons. But if you engage with the, the business units first, that has a different set of pros and cons. Yeah, but I think there's 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 a lot to unpack there because I think again, the where this where the CEO perceives it as their problem, the kind of speed to value in terms of the transformation, I think is a an order of magnitude different. Even of course, even though of course it might surface a whole other series of problems. But again, I think this is a such a key success pattern. And in so many cases where it's limited to the CIO, the CTO, there is this, when it involves a change in the business, when it involves a change in operations, when it involves looking at the entire management system, when it involves bringing the CFO to the table to help the CFO understand some of the economics around software development, where just, you know, the economics of flow are much different than the economies of scale that, that uh, many have grown up with. So, the, I'm sure, and there's another whole host of problems, but it's. I think it's. Uh, it's led to a much faster path. So, can you just take us a bit more through that through that path right now, how it's unfolded, and and where you're focused today? It's definitely been faster this way, but it's probably all like the the price of speed or velocity of transformation is always sort of disruption and friction, and I mean like maybe some lessons I've learned along the way. One is that in big organisations, like our, maybe a side conversation, in Australia we have these birds called lyrebirds and they actually, they, they, they listen to all the other birds and then they make the same sound. But they're really good at it. And so like with the rise of modern society, you can walk around and hear lyrebirds making the sound of chainsaws and car alarms uh, and like, you know, you can see lyrebirds near raves that like sort of play dubstep. <laughs> so like they're really big. Uh, and they're really cool. And what I've realised is that lo- lots of people inside big organisations are repeating a message and they're spreading it and they're, they're amplifying it, but they don't necessarily understand it. And so it's really important that when you're talking to people you, you sort of gauge out, like, do you actually understand or are you repeating? Uh, but it's also really important to make sure that the message is spot on because of this phenomenon through large organisations that whatever you say as a senior leader is just going to get repeated a lot. So you need to be really clear about your sound bites and just be making sure that your transformational message is as simple and crisp and actually use that sort of lyrebird network as a positive not not necessarily a detriment. The second thing is, I, I don't know, like uh, there's that experiment years ago that, you know, people have only just started to realise how smart octopuses are. Uh, and part of that is that, like, octopuses are pretty good at hiding their intelligence. And I remember reading this study about this octopus that was squirting water onto a light switch so that it would turn the lock off on its tank so it could sneak out and do things yep. at night. And like, I sort of form this opinion that there's people 
who are very, very influential across all companies, all organizations, all industries. And the vast majority of what they do is watch. And they don't say a lot, but what they do say is extremely impactful. And so, like, I think there's a big part of transformation, which is finding those people and and just because of the way they act, they have a huge amount of credibility and a huge amount of authority, but also because they spend their time observing and trying to understand rather than trying to get their own message across or to get the repeated message across, they're also the people that are the best people to be able to give you advice and course correct you and make sure you don't make mistakes before you could make them. Okay, so so that I mean I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I I did not I have to say I, I did not have an appreciation for lyrebirds until I actually went to Australia in <laughs> in July, and people did play many lyrebird sounds from their on their phones to me. So and hopefully next time I actually get to see one. But and I I think it's really interesting that you 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 see lyrebirds as a valuable mechanism as well, right? As a, they are a key part of the organization and the way that organizational message and culture and and practices disseminate. So how do you, I think one of the things that you've done so effectively is, is to help CBA create this, and to create this transformation network that that's actually, that is learning, that is course correcting. So is, is that how you think of creating, of that network? Is just, is just a just a MCS or like tessellation of octopuses and lyrebirds or, or how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, so first of all, like, I, the lyrebird thing, I think, is like, it's not a bad thing. And I, I don't think a person is necessarily a lyrebird. Like, I mean, you, you look at children, they start saying words long before they know what they mean. And sort of all languages, no one knows with 100% accuracy exactly what a lot of tech jargon is. Uh, and the definition of things, like, you know, back to cybersecurity, definition of zero trust, that means 50 things to 49 people like that. It just means so many different things. And so it's a normal part of communication to repeat what you've heard to try to sound out what it means. And that is definitely definitely an asset, but also a sign that people are like trying to understand and like break the message down and get into it. And then like everyone is like a liabird on some subjects. The, the, the octopuses thing... I think that's something that takes work. I think you have to work really hard to become like a quiet watcher, but they're they're ultimately the most influential people. I think that transformation, like where it can go very wrong, is if you forget that primarily you're transforming people. You're trying to give them new skills. You're not trying to change their skills. You, You never learn something and forget something else. You're always trying to like, add a skill to people. And I think it, ultimately you have to realize that everyone is a real person with a real life and work is work and life is life. And if you come from that perspective of actually like, how do you transform your workforce in terms of like giving everyone the extra skills that are going to take the whole organization in the right direction? That's the right first step. And then the tech and the measurement and the metrics, they become mechanisms that reinforce your people transformation, not the other way around. Well, so let's dig into that. So I'll give you a, an example of a, a bank that was making the shift from project to product for the for the name of the podcast. And in their transformation, they, they issued an announcement as and there were some reorgs involved that over fifteen thousand project managers 
we're now going to have the title of product manager. So they, they transformed their people overnight, <laughs> or not. But, but the, how do we, you've obviously taken a, a different approach that's been a combination of people, technology, process, the way you've organized crews and so on. So I think we're seeing so many missteps out there right now with, again, and you know, with a desire to speed up transformations rather than take this measured, driven, incremental, but you know, still fast approach. That's, I think it's a pretty deep point that in the end, what you are doing is, is transforming people. And of course, we're transforming the way people collaborate, communicate, plan, the, the, the burden that's in the system, trying to remove it the other way. So share with us some of your lessons on that. I mean, you've got to be super careful of like that renaming people and expecting them to be different is like a, what I call magic thinking. Yeah, It's like you're baking bread, but you decide before you put it in the oven to call the salt sugar and you expect cookies to come out the other side. Yeah, uh, It's not going to make a difference. You, you actually have to change the skill set, change the mindset, and not, not change the skill set, grow the skill set, grow the mindset, get people to understand the why behind it. And, you know, I think that everyone that I've spoken to across the industry in a large company who's been successful is like, it's taken five years, it's taken seven years, it's taken five years and we're halfway there, are what they say. But they're like, they're, I also get a lot of caution on, but you can't tell people it's going to take five years because then they don't drive and push the transformation like it needs to be done in 18 months. It, in reality, it actually takes forever. You have to constantly transform and you have to constantly do it with this like passion of like a growth mindset, but also like a lot of the success stories in other industries than banking that I've heard, they're driven by desperation, right? Like unless we transform, we won't stay in business. It doesn't necessarily, I think, need to be driven by desperation, but it needs that level of energy and investment. And then it needs the ability to sustain it for that five, seven year roadmap. And understand along the way, you're going to get things wrong uh, and that's okay. And, you know, when I look at transformation, as long as you look after people and you're looking after the people in your organisation and as long as you're focusing a lot on measuring whether you're improving rather than measuring where you are, I think you're in a pretty good spot. Right, and I think that's obviously where where our partnership kind of formed around, right, is that my whole view has been we, we just need a feedback cycle on the transformation. Are we making things easier for people, right? The fact that uh, across enterprise organizations, we see a very strong correlation between flow velocity improving and employee engagement right. improving because the only way to really improve flow velocity is not to hire 50% more people. It's to remove burden and waste from the system to make it easier for people to do their work, right? To make it easier to make our large enterprises uh, as easy for new hires from tech giants to, to thrive in, which of course for many organization is, organizations is not the case. So I think, Brendan, can you dig into that? Because I think you have had, how you kind of got to this notion of, of measuring flow, because I think you've been able to, to leverage it in order to actually become more, more data-driven on the transformation and have this feedback loop of where things are getting better, where to prioritize things. I think one of the Things that you know, I've, I've really learned from you that I've, I've personally been applying a lot is to actually understand was well, where are our product pathways that we really need to focus on flow? Which are the project pathways where we're going to leverage or continue, like leave more 
traditional ways of working uh, for the time being. So, so yeah, tell us a bit about your approach and how you've been thinking about, about that kind of measurement. I think about it in two ways. And I, I think about it like, you know, at the value stream level for each owner of a value stream, how do you give them the autonomy and the data and the information so they can do their best job possible? And I think the flow framework and task top starting to help us a lot with that putting data at the fingertips of what we call it a crew, some companies call it a pod, but like whatever unit of work is one value stream. Making sure that they have the information to make the right local decisions for their product and their value stream is the first thing I think about. It's not about making their decisions for them. It's about letting them make their decisions. And then it's two, across the entire organisation, how do you treat it like a factory and work out where the constraint is, and then go and solve for it. I, I remember like a, maybe seven, eight years ago at CBA, all work used to pass through the penetration test. Like every, every product we shipped, whether it was inside, outside, whether it was our most important product or a test product, used to require a security test. And we couldn't hire security testers fast enough, and they became the, the central constraint. I remember at the time... People had this belief that that would like lower the cost of the organization because that central constraint would then mean that everything else automatically c- corrects itself and we just invest less and spend less and we do less projects. Oh, and what actually okay. happens, of course, yeah. is that people wait and they just like they start producing extra work for each other to do. Ah, <laughs> because like, you know, like that the, saying, idle hands are the devil's plaything. Super true in an enterprise. If people aren't actually working on pulling value through for the customer, they're probably working on creating work that doesn't need to be done. Yeah. So, like identifying that is one thing that we're we're really focusing on as well. Okay, and so that's been your approach, right? And I think that there's something I've been seeing so much more of this and and trying to understand better as well, right? Is that at that agile team, that feature team, the Scrum team uh, level? There's, we understand things pretty well, but it is those those next two levels, like the crew pod, that that value stream level, is making sure that we actually understand the right metrics. We give them empowerment and autonomy to make those decisions, and then of course that organizational, that that systemic level. What what systemic conditions do we need to change, and where the bottlenecks is is the only way we can get insights across the teams, right? Is the only way, or and so organizations and and. Digital natives tend to be good at this, right? Uh, the reason they see the need to invest in, let's say, security automation, right? Uh, vulnerability automation, simulations, attack simulations, right? Tech, right. tech giants increasingly invest in that because they constantly know what their bottleneck is. And lo and behold, oftentimes it actually is related to security. So this is a, I, I remember on, on this podcast as well, I asked Adrian Cockcroft, you know, Amazon was where's, where, where their, where's the bottleneck? Today and then actually it was answers around needing to automate more security and that that becoming a, a key bottleneck. So, so is I guess that sounds like your guidance, Brendan, is to, to understand that that data that flow the bottlenecks both at that that value stream level and then and then at the organization level. Yeah, absolutely. And then like the other thing would be you know security is shifting and, and risk management and resilience they're all shifting away from this like and I don't mean. For our company, I mean across the globe from what I observe, shifting away from this management of like the likelihood of an occurrence of an event 
and towards minimizing the impact, like blast radius mm-hmm. reduction. And then I think one of my key things I've learned is that blast radius reduction, where you're comfortable setting the blast radius, an outage at any organization is bad at a bank. Lots of things have to go wrong, like an airplane crash. It's never one mistake. It's yeah. a sequence of things that have to go wrong because we, we've engineered a lot of safety into the processes. But it still does happen. And so if you look at the actual, assume bad things will happen, what's your acceptable blast radius? And then make sure that you provide your autonomy and velocity to that blast radius size team. You, you you won't have a blast radius that's a business unit. It'll always be a value stream or a sub part of a value stream, which means that it becomes more and more important to make them autonomous. And, and those two concepts are directly connected. They're actually the same thing. Your autonomy is your blast radius. If you're running a system that can destroy an entire organization. Like if it's down, the entire organization is down. You basically need to get the entire organization to agree every time you say something. So by minimizing blast radius, you add autonomy. Okay, so that's interesting. You're basically describing that that Swiss cheese model of failure, right? Where the kind of the, the slices in terms of the, the vulnerabilities are, you know, we imagine them as a slice of Swiss cheese, and for a plane to go down, you need those holes in the Swiss cheese to align, right? But so how how do you actually apply that? to your organizational design because you're saying each one of those failure planes is responsible for its own blast radius. So you give them autonomy to move fast and restore or repair or can you dig in? This is, this is a, this is super interesting. Can you dig into that a bit more? I mean, it's really hard and it takes years. And this is like, this is like the deep tech side from my perspective of like one of the reasons why these transformations are forever, but like, you know, five years at a minimum, to really see a, a huge step change is because, like, you know, that, that enterprise IT, how, uh, like, ITIL processes or, like, how enterprises ran sort of before the emergence of the tech giants or before the emergence of DevOps was all about careful coordination. And the economics pre-cloud was all about it's better to rationalise and have one of something. Yeah. And so lots of organizations have ended up with big platforms that lots of things are dependent on. And that's okay if the platform is a team and you architect the system so that every consuming value stream has its own instance. And so then it starts looking like like the reverse Conway maneuver. Architect and design your systems to give your squads and your crews and your domains or your, you know, your various levels of hierarchy autonomy from each other at their own level through separating the blast radius out, asking the question, can you actually safely change without impacting outside of your crew? If not, then your blast radius is at the domain level. And or and there are terms domain crew squad, but like, you know, across the layers of the organization, understanding the impact is the same as understanding who has to sign off on the change. And then it's like being really, really clear, everything new you build, you want to encourage that autonomy. And then making sure that all of your enabling platforms are built from the ground up or redeveloped from the ground up to encourage that incremental autonomy and reduction of blast radius and risk. That's, yeah, I, that's, I think it's such 
a key success pattern I've actually seen. I've not seen it characterized the way that you're talking about, where it's around that blast radius, but it makes so much sense, right? Because the, the thing that we see is that the more autonomy there is between value streams to the point where there will actually be duplication so that they can optimize around their flow and around supporting or, or fixing issues around their blast radius very quickly, the, the higher the overall velocity of the organization as a whole, which, which is very counterintuitive when you look at old school ways of looking at ITIL service management enterprise architecture where there should be just one of everything and, and in the end that actually causes, again I think that, that's really unique because it, what we see it causes is bottlenecks, but you actually call it, you say it causes much larger, in this case, failure planes or outages or security or attack surfaces. So fascinating. So, so then Brendan, this is, it's just a tricky question and it's, it's one I've been asking every, every octopus I know and you certainly qualify. The how do you think about the ownership model for this and the organizational design model, right? Because you need, let's just go back to your, you know, so your value stream autonomy, the data, the information, and you think about, and then you know, your, your number one thing, number two, that, that whole organizational understanding, that systemic understanding. What's the ownership and organizational structure that you find effective for that? Because in the end, it's like you're saying that the tools can provide the data, they can provide the flow metrics, they can help with roadmaps and OKRs and really really providing that data, but in the end, the way that squads and teams are structured and organized, and then in that value stream case, and the way that the ownership for the systemic conditions, so for improving that bottleneck, whether it's security today or it's user experience design tomorrow, how do you think about the ownership structures for that, especially with the complexity of moving an organization that's, you know, Imagine you know you're now you're you're an octopus advising the next the next Brendan Hopper the next bank who's got an org chart that's matched up to very old ways of working, with a lot of separation with IT with security being someone else's problem. How do you actually think of the leadership and, and org structure principles around this? Oof, that is a hard question, Mick. I I, I don't have an all, I keep asking. That's why I keep asking the question because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there's a single answer, but but I, I like to like your current take on it. I, I mean. I, People love to say org structure doesn't matter. I'd love that to be true. I think it really, really matters. I I think like lesson number one is like org structure has to continually change. You wouldn't design a product for a customer and then say the design that we have now is going to be the same as the design five years from now and we're not going to listen to our customers. I think you have to, over time, gradually design your org structure around your products. So you look at like, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't start, like you should start with what does the customer want and what product meets their needs? And then what's the architecture that supports that, minimizes the blast radius and lets the team who are building that the right autonomy? And from then, when you've mapped that out, then you can start working out, okay, because, you know, the, it's almost like a once you've got that level and that diagram, you, your org structure is pretty much done. You just put names in boxes. Yeah. Ah, very, very hard to start taking that approach to software, but I think it's essential because if you can tell an organization's org structure from looking at their APIs, that's a problem. Like one of the people we have, Victoria Later, she's taught me a lot about that. Like if you can tell an org structure looking at someone's API, looking at their applications, there's an issue. The only solution I can think of that is 
work out what your customers need, what your applications should look like, and structure around them. Right, but that is to your point, just reversing Conway's law, right? Because your 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 right. org structure, will, your APIs will look like your org structure, but right. if that's not the, matching the business problem, change your org structure and have the mechanisms so that you can change whatever portion of your org structure needs to move as fast as your software architecture in place. If you need to change someone's reporting line every time you want to change the flow of power around the organization so you can change your software architecture, it's not going to work. Your constraint's going to become the HR department, which is why like, if you look at how tech companies are structured, they're very much more structured like there's pools of people who are then linked to initiatives. And I think one of the reasons why that seems to succeed is because you can be far more agile. Because, you know, the reason org structure matters and reflects in your software design is actually the flow of funding and power and decision-making up and down the organisation. And so if you can separate that from the, the sort of like human resources side of it, then you're in a much better position to be agile because you need to be as agile with your org structure as you do with your software. Yeah, and I think your point there, Brendan, is that org, the org structure has to continually change. I, I have not heard that, actually I've not heard those words said exactly that way before and I, I just could not agree more, right? And I think there's been so much concern around uh, disrupting teams, right? But in the end, if, if you're actually... So here's something we've seen in the data of organizations in terms of their, their flow metrics. It's actually, whereas it's really expensive to break and reform teams, of course that takes a lot of time, it's actually a much cheaper operation if we think of these, this is kind of a refactor operations on the organization because we're refactoring in the end the org structure, then that impacts the software architecture, which then impacts the product value streams, right? Moving teams between value streams is actually a lot cheaper because if you've got a bottleneck, you move one of your agile teams into that value stream and you bring, let's say, the front end closer to the API or to a piece of the infrastructure or something and do that for a quarter or two. And of course, you know, doing that in a data-driven way to see did that improve things or did that not improve things by, by measuring the flow is, we, I know, I, I, we certainly look at it in terms of my own teams every, every quarter. Is we we look at the org structure and changing the org structure, right? Every single time we do, uh, you know, we do our road mapping and OKR planning, the the quarterly OKR planning. So any, I think that's such such key advice. So any any anything else more on that? Because I think that's a learning that that's not percolated out there enough. Yeah, I mean, like you and I were talking before. One one more point, and you laughed a lot because I said that sometimes agile coaches are the least agile people in the organization. Please don't tell anyone I laughed at that. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> that, that, that's actually that's actually also really related to the to to the org structure conversation because you know this core principle that you should always be evolutionary and you should focus on small increments, not major redesigns, needs to apply to everything. Yeah, it needs to apply to how you approach your org structure, how you approach your metrics, how you, like revolutions don't work. Or revolutions that do work are actually just the sum of thousands of evolutionary steps. And agile coaches, I think, like when they become like non-agile, the opposite of agile is when they try to move too far in one step and they start focusing very much on we should look like A, not B, that's wrong, and not, hey, we're very far away from A, Let's move a fifth of the way there. And so I think that 
if you can apply this incremental approach to absolutely everything, that that's probably like my one last message. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I couldn't could not agree more. And of course, we've got the coaches out there who who take that approach, right? Who take a small batch approach uh, to transformation. Yeah. yeah. But this I'm is, not, I don't want to start a war with all agile <laughs> coaches yeah. across Earth because they're probably half yeah. of them listen to your podcast. That's, Most of the time, um, they're not like that. They could just get stuck in that groove occasionally. Well, no, I think that's there's a disconcerting number of agile transformations happening in a very waterfall way. And I think that's a really good way to characterize it, right? Is that we, we need to go f- you know, from A to B in this time frame, in this number of months, and implement these ceremonies. And there is a lot of this, this kind of kind of waterfall and flexible large batch thinking around it. And I think challenging that right. is like give key. me a project plan for how we're gonna roll out agile. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Are we really going to get there if that's our approach? Yeah, that's right. And then it it does the way that you bring in these the, the fact that other things have to change and taking that fifth step of the way, but but changing the architecture and the organizational structure and the team structure and the alignment of the value streams. That fifth every quarter, of course, allows you to course correct so much more. So, Brendan, any this this is fantastic. Any other final words of of wisdom or guidance for everyone who's who's uh, sitting in your shoes elsewhere? No, I think I mean. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I think like it's all about patience, persistence, but also passion, right? Uh, and then just like once again reiterate, it's a transformation of people and they're real people. And if you just keep that in mind and understand that you, it's going to take a long time, but it's worthwhile, then uh, you kind of can't go wrong. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you to Brendan Hopper for sharing some of his expertise with us today. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project Product. You can also find Brendan on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product for the book. And remember that all of the proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Also, don't forget to join the FlowFramer community on Slack, which you can find on flowframework.org. Thanks, and until next time.